Welcome to Shorewords, the ASPN podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, the host of Shorewords, and in each episode, I talk with authors about their coastal writing and also with coastal leaders about their stories that inspire their chosen paths. Today, it's my great pleasure to talk with Dr. Catherine Yusumichi about writing and her books, especially about her book on Mary Sears. But first, I'll pause for information from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an ND5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Dr. Musumichi, or Dr. Kate, as I know you go by for many of your, your patients, your early writing has been about trauma surgery, trauma care, and pediatric surgery. What led you to take this giant leap into World War II marine scientists and especially Mary Sears? Well, good morning, Leslie. Uh, that's an interesting question. And in my second book, Hurt, which is a history of injury care, what I discovered was that Almost all of early injury care related to treating uh, victims of combat. And I spent quite a bit of time uh, researching the war, starting with the Civil War, <clears throat> working my way through World War I and then up to World War II in Vietnam. And what I discovered is that World War II was such a major event in our nation's history that touched just about everyone's lives here. And I knew I wanted to write about World War II, and it was just a matter of uh, finding the right person and scenario uh, in which to do so. And so with Lethal Tides, I guess you found your your person and your scenario. Well, that's, that's true. I was reading a book uh, called Women Warriors, which was about um, several women in World War II, professional women. And I was actually researching someone else. But when I came across uh, the story of Mary Sears, I was just amazed by everything she had done, starting with uh, the fact that she trained to become a marine biologist in the 1930s when it was just about impossible for a woman to break into that male-dominated field. And about that time... um, I got together with my father, who had been a 17-year-old sailor during World War II, and I discovered in taking his oral history that he had fought 
at several of the major battles in the Pacific that Mary Sears had provided oceanographic intelligence for. And so that intersection, I just found that uh, irresistible, that I would have to dig in further um, and learn more about exactly what she had done and how she had gone about uh, doing it. So your book is this wonderful weaving together of her story, the story of many of the other marine biologists who became oceanographers, who became so critical to the war, plus a lot of the naval history that was going on, which I guess you started at this through the the trauma care that came from that, but which did you find more compelling as you were going along? Well, I think they are all very interesting stories. Uh, The way Mary Sears came out of a a childhood where she was supposed to become a debutante, but then her mother died when she was six years old and her father remarried a school teacher, and that kind of sent her down an academic path. That was that was very interesting to me. And and of course I had no idea uh, that oceanography was just coming into its own as a professional science uh, during World War II. But I would have to say the most riveting, dramatic part of the story has to be uh, how the amphibious forces were thrown into this war. It really had not fought in any uh, major conflict before World War II and had to uh, get up to speed in terms of uh, equipment and expertise and gaining some knowledge about this new aquatic battlefield that they found themselves in. And and it is so interesting to think because that was the first form of global travel and transport was to go by ship. And yet that type of shipping was done at ports at identified areas where you were welcome for the most part. And um, the idea of marine transport and using transport vehicles, using ducks, using the LVTs and small vehicles to try and land on rather inhospitable terrain with inhospitable conditions of the people who don't want you to be landing there is very different. What do you think were the transfer qualifications that let several of these amazing women and men trained in mostly, as you say, marine biology to then start getting into the physical sciences? Well, I think uh, the skills that they had acquired as researchers, for example, I think those those skills proved to be very transferable in, in this uh, environment where they needed to quickly find resources about these remote targets in the Pacific and uh, prepare these oceanographic intelligence reports for the Joint Chiefs. For example, one of the individuals involved in this effort was uh, a woman named Mary Greer, who had been an oceanographic um, librarian at the University of Washington. And she wasn't just any librarian. She was probably uh, the best qualified 
uh, oceanographic librarian in the country. And she was one of the few people who had compiled uh, an oceanographic index on the Pacific. So that was a very valuable resource in an age where there were no computers, no ability to Google anything, nothing was digitalized. So uh, she had compiled this uh, oceanographic index with articles about uh, very remote places and every resource that had been printed on, on them. And that proved to be very valuable, but it also, she had accumulated a database, uh, not only in this book, but in her head, so that when she heard of these targets, these military targets that she would be working on, she knew where to go to get more data on them. She was a very interesting character, a very interesting person, I should say. Um, I would expect someone's going to read your book and decide to do a second book about her and her um, then future concerns because she was identified as potentially being part of the Communist Party. Right. I She had a brother-in-law that was uh, a member of the Co- Communist Party um, there in Washington. I She herself denied being a member, uh, but there was no question that she had contributed to various campaigns and, and, and other things that tied her to the Communist Party. Yet she was still allowed to continue working on these uh, classified reports. So that tells you how valuable she was to the mission. And not only that, Mary Sears said that uh, she stated later in one of her oral histories that Every week, somebody was being investigated. It was just the thing that was going on then. Uh, There were a lot of national security concerns, and a lot of people had dabbled in uh, Communist Party or other fringe groups, and she was always being, Mary Sears was always being interviewed about them. So it, it didn't change her perception of Mary Greer or her capabilities. You write about everyone, you use just their last names. I mean, you talk about Sears and Greer. Was that how they were referred to most of the time when they were working? Or is that your predilection to use last names? You know, I would say that was something that the editors had stipulated, that once we introduced a character, uh, the style they wanted to follow, the format, was to refer to them by their last name after, after having introduced them. Right. And then I realized Mary Sears died in 1997, and you started writing this book maybe five or six years ago, which means it was many years after she had passed. Did you ever get to meet her before she died? No, I did not. You tell the story so much from her perspective in many cases and talk about how she cared so much about things. How did you get that that sense of her um, value system? Well, I had several sources. Uh, first of all, I, I traveled to Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and I went there to uh, review the archives. And, and there were several boxes of, of information on Mary Sears, as you would imagine, since she spent her entire career outside World War II at Woods Hole. But I also met people that knew her, and I specifically met a woman. uh, She and her husband had moved in with Mary Sears uh, 
uh, for several decades before before Mary Sears died. And they, they her husband had been a, f- a family friend of Mary Sears, and Mary Sears had been like an aunt to, to him and his siblings. And the woman I met was still living in Mary Sears' house. Who She had inherited Mary Sears' home, and, and she had even more information, not only just personal details that she shared with me, but other information I was... I was able to review that gave me a very good idea of, of who Mary Sears was. Uh, I had several oral histories that Mary Sears uh, had uh, conducted, and it, they also illuminated uh, who she was. And then there were a number of newspaper articles where she was interviewed um, after the war, uh, just as a, a woman in oceanography, and she would give an interview and, and talk briefly about the war. So I, I found a number of different sources, and I was able to, to put together um, who I thought she was. Have you visited Mary Sears, the ship? And explain that to folks. Well, Mary Sears, the USNS Mary Sears, is an oceanographic survey ship that was named after Mary Sears. It was the first uh, survey ship named after a woman. And this ship is active today. It, it, it is a ship that goes on various missions around the world and collects oceanographic data uh, and um, uses that to support the armed forces. I may get the chance to see the USNS Mary Sears. I, I will be speaking at the... Um, Naval Oceanographic Office at the Stennis Space Center here in a a month or two. And I think that the USNS Mary Sears is sometimes docked in that area. Uh, But I'll certainly find out more about it because these are the people that uh, direct where it is going and how the information is used. So that'll be exciting. Great. I I wish you luck on being able to... um get on board the ship. And I think it's, it's, it's very fitting that while she wasn't really allowed to get on research vessels for much of the time she was doing research in the U S there's now a ship named for her. Um, But she did get ship time as you talk about in your book. And that was very critical to her um, being able to do the work she did later on. Um, What do you, what's the origin of that, idea that women shouldn't be on research vessels? Well, I think it goes back to mythology and Odysseus and the fact that uh, women were perceived to be bad luck on ships for whatever reason. Uh, this uh, stuck around in, in uh, this bias stuck around for decades, particularly in this country, not so much in other countries, uh, but certainly in the United States. And as a result of that, Mary Sears was not allowed to go out on overnight expeditions. Uh, This is almost sort of a puritanical plus, you know, biases against women being, being uh, unlucky on, on voyages. Uh, So as a result, she had to uh, seek her, uh, field research opportunity in Peru, off the coast of uh, Peru, 
uh, right before the outset of World War II. So she was sailing through uh, very dangerous waters to get to her destination to perform research. And the whole time she was there, uh, those waters were were dangerous because of the threat of, of uh, German submarines and Japanese submarines. Um, and once World War II broke out, Mary Sears was there uh, on December 7th, 1941. And she had to make a decision. Am I going to finish my research or am I going to go back? And, and just what am I going to do here? And she decided to stick it out for another few months and finish what she had started uh, because her research was very important to the guano industry there in, uh, in Peru, and that was their lifeblood. So she was researching the food supply for the guano birds, which were the anchovies that fed off of plankton. And the plankton, that was her primary uh, expertise. So she stuck it out and then went back to uh, Woods Hole. And she came back to a Woods Hole that was very different than the one she left. That is correct. Um, Woods Hole was undergoing a transformation probably even before she left. But uh, by the time she got back, it had been almost completely taken over by the Navy in terms of everyone working on naval projects. So Woods Hole, which had had more of a, uh, had had when it was founded in 1930, had more of a, a marine biology emphasis, now was being taken over by uh, the field of physical oceanography as opposed to marine biology. And everyone uh, was working on developing instruments or, or you know, collecting data about the ocean that was important for the military. So many of the people who are important to her career, important to actually the outcome of the war, as it turns out, are people who are, are renowned in the field of oceanography to this day. I mean, Roger Bravel is the person you mentioned that she was brought in to replace so that he could go off and do the work he wanted to do, and she would be an adequate, or it turns out more than adequate person to take over dealing with the Joint Chiefs of Staff and answering questions and providing information that was needed. Um, it was incredible to be reading about these people who are, for me, icons in the field of, of well, I'm a coastal engineer, but still the areas of oceanography and the, the work that we have today and we take for granted all being developed in rapid form for the, the, for the war efforts. She was a pretty amazing person, though, to pull together so much and just switch gears so quickly. I, I appreciated the 33 articles or conditions that Roger Ravel apparently reeled off quickly of what you needed to know for any oceanographic understanding of an area that then went into the Janus reports. But I'd never heard of those reports before. So... Um, Want to explain what they are? Are they still, are those open publications at this point? Um, and how were they used, of course? Well, the Janus reports uh, that you're referring to, Leslie, are the Joint Army-Navy Intelligence Studies. And these have a, a, an interesting history because this is something that got underway uh, shortly after Mary Sears arrived at the uh, a 
Navy's hydrographic office in uh, Seatland, Maryland, just outside of D.C. And um, Mary Sears, this is kind of remarkable. So because women had to be, at the outset of World War II, they were not allowed in the armed forces. So the Wax Bill passed first in 1942, and then the Waves Bill was passed by Congress, allowing women to serve in the Navy. And then Mary Sears had initially applied as soon as she uh, was able to in 1942 and was turned down uh, for the Navy because she had a history of uh, arthritis, although it was probably something else because it was you know, self-limiting. By the time Mary Sears uh, was allowed into the waves because of a medical waiver and had done her indoctrination midshipman school at Mount Holyoke. It was April of 1943. Uh, We had been in the war then for about a year and a half. So it's kind of, to me, mind-boggling that it, first of all, that it took her that long to get to get through the process, but also that the the Navy was really kind of operating blindly in terms of oceanographic uh, expertise, at least in the hydrographic office. She was the first full-time oceanographer. And she was working on various projects when the Joint Chiefs decided they needed to start this new program called the Janus Program, because when they would show up at the uh, Joint chief conferences and the combined chiefs with with Winston Churchill and and his joint chiefs, they just didn't have enough information uh, to help with the war planning process on their side of the table. So they wanted to have as much information as they could have for war planning, particularly in the uh, Pacific uh, arena where these remote islands had been shrouded in secrecy for decades. So they instituted this series of reports that would be done. Um, and, it, and at first, it, 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 they stumbled a little bit coming out of the gate because at first some of the targets they, were, they had the group working on were not particularly aligned uh, with the Pacific campaign. But after um, a very bad outcome at, a, at something called the Battle of Tarawa where they were lacking accurate information about the tides, then the... Uh, Janus priorities were realigned to be more more closely matching what were the upcoming targets for the Pacific campaign. In part of your book, you have a statement that I think is so true for the world that I wrote it down verbatim, but it's when when Mary Sears first went to the Joint Chiefs Subcommittee on Oceanography, and the statement was, in some cases, they didn't even know what they were lacking or what to ask for. And while that seems like it, as I said, could apply to almost every situation and many different conditions and not just in oceanography, but what were some of the key things, having read all of this, I'm sure you went through many of the Janus reports, what do you think were the key things they learned they needed as they were going along? Well, I think what they learned they needed was uh, as much information as they could find out about uh, what conditions were going to be when they were attempting to land at these 
on these islands. And, uh, you know, if you, people might think, well, what, there can't be that much to it. You just, you know, speed your boat up there and get out. But there was a lot more to it because you needed to understand what were the tides going to be like, particularly if you had to get across a, a coral reef or a barrier reef that was encircling the entire island. And something as simple as the tides could trip up an entire operation, not understanding that the tidal levels were not going to be high enough to get across the coral reef. And that's what happened at Tarawa, where uh, Tarawa, the Battle of Tarawa was one of the major amphibious landings of World War II that took place in November 1943. And Mary Sears and her uh, marine biologists did not have the opportunity to study this area in any depth. There was no Janus report done on on Tarawa because you know it the Janus program had not been up and running long enough. And at Tarawa, the the information that uh, the military planners had on on tides was that they were relying on the very outdated. Uh, nautical charts and the memories of of foreign uh, officers and locals, and they misjudged the tides. And as a result, the landing boats could not get across the coral reef, and the men were stranded and had to bail out of these uh, landing boats and were shot up as they waded to shore. So, you know, this kind of thing pointed out to Admiral Nimitz after this operation and everyone else involved with planning the Pacific campaign, hey, we really better start paying attention to what we're going to be facing uh, when we land on these islands, whether it be a violent surf, uh, waves, uh, a sharp uh, uh, landing angle to the, to the uh, shore. Um, there were just a number of things that could trip up an operation. And one of the th- Interesting things to me was the um, landing at Iwo Jima. And growing up, I'd heard of the battles and the difficulties there, but hadn't realized that part of the difficulty was getting through this muck of very um, loose, almost feet deep, powdery, volcanic soil. And um, I've looked at recent, well, not recent, I've recently looked at old reports for some of the beaches in California that were done back in the 50s and identification of some of the things that were um, of importance at the time the, the plans were made. And one was trackability. And I looked at it and I scratched my head and I realized that that was not something we think of today very often as being an important beach characteristic. But certainly if you're trying to drive vehicles across a beach, once they've come up onto land, you want to know if the sand and the sediment there is going to be able to support the weight of the vessels. And in Iwo Jima, Iwo Jima apparently that was not the case. That was just such a, a horrible attack and battle and from the get-go, it was just a difficult one for people to get through. And that must have been a hard part of the report book for you to write so close and yet such a difficult battle to go through. 
Well, uh, you're exactly right, Leslie. Uh, I puzzled over the fact that there was no Janus report for Iwo Jima. Uh, it just was such a glaring gap in the intelligence, and it took me quite a while to figure out why, or at least I think I know why now. And it's because Iwo Jima was not decided on as a definitive target uh, in time for a Janus report to be done. So during the central prong of the Pacific campaign, um, they were trying to decide were they going to go up more towards the coast of of China and and through what was called Formosa, which which is the present-day Taiwan, or were they going to go the other direction through Iwo Jima and then on to Okinawa? So there was a Janus report on Okinawa. There was not one on Iwo Jima. And I think as a result, the landing suffered, at least knowing in advance, um, you know, having more of a heads up. And there were two problems at Iwo Jima. One, as you mentioned, <clears throat> was this very uh, deep uh, black volcanic sand that men and vehicles and everything just sunk into. And we know from oral histories of the men that were there, I was able to get these from the uh, uh, Museum of the Pacific War, that they had to crawl across this sand because they could not walk across it. And when you're under enemy fire, that yeah, you're really hampered uh, to getting to, uh, to safety by having to crawl across. And then these vehicles had to be towed uh, out of the sand. They were just stuck. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't get their armament and their supplies across that sand. And the other problem, there were some plunging waves there at Iwo Jima that led to the splintering of these of the landing boats that were made out of plywood. So there would just be these masses of plywood clogging up the channels, the distribution channels on the uh, on the shore. So all of that had to be uh, moved out of the way so that the uh, mission could continue. And it's almost un- unfathomable that something like this would happen. I mean, today we would be shocked if something like this happened, but this is just how it was in World War II. There was, there was so much ground to cover. There were so many gaps in intelligence and, and knowledge, expertise, appropriate equipment. People were really flying by the seat of their, of their pants a lot of the time. And I think Iwo Jima sort of shows what the, what the danger in that could be. There were there were so many incredible scientific advancements, though, that came out of that scramble to get intelligence. And I had the um, opportunity to see one of those silk maps that were prepared. And the the levels of detail and the number of, of pieces of information that are conveyed in just such a, a small and utilitarian way is is incredible and i think that we we recognize the horrors of that war and sometimes forget the um the incredible work behind all the efforts to um try to make people's safety as as paramount as possible to try to find people when their pilots when their planes went down 
and to develop drift maps and all the incredible science that suddenly was, it wasn't new, but it was suddenly pulled together in a very effective and applied way. And your book covers so many of those aspects. I know we've talked about the war, but there are other things that, well, all of it was around the war, but there are so many things that you've covered in your book. What what are the things that you think were the most critical for that information development? Let let me just go back to the cloth maps. I mean, that that was uh, a very ingenious development that took place, again, on the fly. And the material for the maps had to be developed. What sort of material could an aviator uh, take into the ocean that it wouldn't dissolve and the, and the ink wouldn't dissolve? And um, here in the United States, they came up with a type of uh, rayon, a type of nylon for the maps. And then they had to figure out how to print on the maps, because if you can imagine printing on nylon or rayon, that would be very difficult. So they had to develop the right kind of ink and then the right kind of uh, printing press to do this and to do it on both sides. And it was pointed out that that was the kind of thing you would only spend that sort of resources and money and expertise on that sort of thing during a war because you thought it was important enough to do, because it would never make economic sense to do it now. The demand for it would be so small. But at that time, you know, more planes were crashing than ever because air travel was relatively new and the Pacific Ocean was so vast and we had more aviators going down and winding up in these uh, rafts at sea. So that that was one thing that was pointed out. I think another thing that came out of the war that proved to be a very valuable oceanographic research tool was the development of the bathythermograph. And this bathythermograph was a very large sort of cumbersome instrument, you know, a couple of feet and, and heavy. Uh, it was used uh, to measure temperature versus depth at sea. And this was important because in, in the ocean, there are layers of temperature change called thermoclines that are, are the layers where uh, submarines can hide. So at the outset of the war, uh, over in Woods Hole, they had a very primitive version of this bathythermograph, and scientists there uh, worked to streamline it, make it more reliable, more efficient, and then men had to go out on ships and deploy this thing off the side of the boat, off the side of the ships, and and reel it down into the ocean, drop it down into the ocean, and reel it back hundreds of times and collect these tiny glass slides out of a chamber that had been uh, smoked with skunk oil. And then a little stylus would etch a very primitive graph on on this slide. And um, these slides were then collected and they were analyzed at Woods Hole and at Scripps Oceanographic Institution. This information was exceedingly valuable to the United States in in submarine warfare and in anti-submarine warfare when we were hunting uh, for German or Japanese submarines. It was very dangerous information to try to collect. in the book, I, I write about a young man named Carl 
uh, Wyant, who um, was in the process of collecting these measurements off the side of a ship uh, when his vessel was torpedoed. And uh, he was very badly injured, and he and several other men had to deploy into a, into a raft. And as a result, he, he did not survive um, this injury, and he essentially gave his life for the collection of this uh, data that was very essential to the war effort. And there are so many stories of people just like Carl Wyant who took these risks to collect the data. And, and I believe people like Mary Sears and the uh, marine scientists she worked with, they understood that people were taking great risks to collect it, whether it was deploying at sea and collecting these measurements or out on an oceanographic survey ship that tried to sneak in and get some information, or the frogmen who were the, who were the precursors to the Navy SEALs who would do these dangerous dives at night and sneak up to shore to check different measurements, or the, the uh, aviators who performed aerial surveillance and took photos. And all of this data, all of it was, was information that Mary Sears and her group relied on and used to put together these amazing uh, oceanographic intelligence reports. I, I really appreciate the human aspect you've brought to the um, analyses brought for World War II, and especially in the Pacific area. And I, I think the other part I really appreciate in your book is how nicely it was written. I really enjoyed reading it. I think our listeners will enjoy it. Um, Lethal Tides is just an amazing accounting of a part of World War II that we don't necessarily consider as much as the the fighting and the battles, but the preparatory work that was done beforehand that was so critical to being able to get to those remote locations. Lethal Tides has just gone on sale, which I'm sure is, is of great joy to you to hear. And you said your pub day was just last week, so it's it's very new, hot off the presses. And I expect you're dealing now 100, 150% with that publication and its release. And as you say, you're going to be going soon down to Stennis and talking there, I'm sure, in part about your book. But do you have plans for another coastal or ocean book? What is your next project? <laughs> well, I... I have been working uh, on a proposal about a woman, a woman physician there were, in World War II. There were actually, uh, there was a group of women uh, who, even before World War II broke out in this country, when the Britain, British were involved in it, of course, women could not serve in the armed forces, as I mentioned before, and these these women physicians really wanted to be involved in the war effort. Uh, they they would be working at hospitals where a group of men would go over, but the women were told, no, you can't go. The women physicians, but they might take women nurses, but they wouldn't take women physicians. And so a group of women uh, were able to work through uh, different channels and get over to the war. Uh, in Europe. And so that's sort of what I am 
uh, focusing on next. I like your attention to the women in these areas very much. As I, I mentioned to you in my first note, my mother was a mathematician and did mathematics during World War II as a Navy mathematician. And I, I've been inspired now to research a little bit more of her history after having read your book about Mary Sears. Oh, yeah, I think I think you absolutely have to, because I, I think some of the best books about uh, World War II are written by family members. And people write to me every day uh, who have either written books about family members in World War II or, you know, who, who have a connection to the war because of family members. So I, I think you really want to follow up on that, Leslie, and see what you can find. Well, now I'm retired. I think that means I've got time for these projects, but I'm not sure where... As I hear from everyone else who's retired, there's really not extra time. It's just sort of a different, it's diverted differently. But this is a podcast, the American Shoreline Podcast Network, in fact. So I do have to bring this back to beaches as my final question for you. Do you have a favorite beach that you like to go to? Matter of fact, I do. It is in uh, Port Aransas, Texas. Wonderful. Why do you like that so much? It is a beautiful beach. It is. A, it has long stretches where you can walk. I mean, just for for miles, it seems like you can walk up and down that beach. It's it's beautiful. It's not soiled in any way, uh, which is unusual for Texas beaches. And the people are so friendly there. So I just really love going down to Port Aransas. Wonderful, Dr. Musumici. It's been wonderful talking to you about lethal tides. I'm only sorry that we're not doing it as we're walking on your favorite beach in Port Aransas, but maybe next time, maybe I'll come down to Texas and I'll see you there. Lethal Tides is an amazing book. It is now on sale, and I hope that people will look at it and consider getting a copy. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shore Words. And it's been an amazing journey back into World War II and some of the origins or original foundational work in oceanography and the story of the woman, Dr. Mary Sears, who was so critical to some of the work that was done, much of the work that was done and the transfer of that knowledge to the people who needed it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Leslie. It was a real pleasure. Till the next time, enjoy the coast and your view of the shore.